It's God's word. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who, have, who still have hope. I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. Judah is my bow, and Israel is my arrow. Jerusalem is my sword, and like a warrior, I will brandish it against the Greeks. We'll leave the reading of God's word there. It's helpful to have that in front of you because we're going to be referring to it um, off and on for the next few moments. Um, I want to encourage you. I want to, I want to uh, give you hope. And, and uh, what I've, I've, I've uh, sort of titled this talk is Three Reasons for Hope This Christmas. And, and we will see them coming out through this scripture here. But I'll tell you the three reasons off the top so you can, you can jot them down if you want. The first reason for hope this Christmas is it won't, like, it won't be like this forever. The second reason for hope this Christmas is that hope has a name. And the third reason for hope this Christmas is your life counts. Your life counts. Firstly, the reason for hope this Christmas is it won't be like this forever. We need hope, don't we? I need hope. Um, In fact, I think we can't live without hope. If you remove someone's hope, then you remove their their cause for living. Uh, There's a famous proverb in the Old Testament that says, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. It recognizes this truth that if you remove hope, we become sick. Uh, Our hearts become sick. And there's so much in our world and in our experience, even today, to rob us of hope, is there not? As you come here uh, and and, and you think, where is my hope? Uh, Perhaps the, the news the fears of the new variants of COVID doing the rounds, again, sweeping across uh, various parts of the world, robs you of hope. We thought we were over this, and now this again. Uh, perhaps for you it's the impending threat of further restrictions on our activities and on our liberties, and you think, oh my goodness, that's robbing me of hope. The, the threat of more lockdowns perhaps looming. Where is the hope? Perhaps you, like me, have been utterly undone by some of the the news that you've read on your mobile devices you've been scrolling this week of heinous crimes that have been committed in our own nation. Children, for example, being killed in most terrible ways. Even in our own city yesterday, there were two murders that happened on the streets. Where is the hope? Hope When hope is robbed from us, hope can lead to all sorts of reactions, all sorts of compensations. Without hope, we tend towards depression, a severe form of that. Uh, Without hope, people turn to suicide. There's no reason to carry on living. For others, without hope, they turn cynical. 
They become sort of fatalistic. They, they engage in, in activities with reckless abandon. What, what the heck? What does it matter? And perhaps some people will end up with life-controlling addictions because they've no hope. They need to cope somehow. Well, God gave this message in Zechariah 9 to a, a group of people who were hopeless. Uh, he gave them this message of hope. They, they, they were a small community of uh, Israelites, I suppose, the people of Israel, uh, returning exiles. Um, where had they been previously? They'd been living uh, well, uh, primarily in, in, a, in Babylon. Uh, the, the generation before them um, had, had been overpowered by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been ransacked. And many of the top people, the top thinkers, the elites... Uh, I suppose you could say, of society, were taken off to exile to go and serve the Babylonian Empire. Some were left to, to, to work the land, but other peoples were brought in uh, um, just to, just to keep, keep things in check. But so fast forward a generation later, uh, the second generation of exiles, they return then, they're permitted to return by the Persian Empire to return back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple again. And so that's, that's who these people are addressing. They're being addressed here in Zechariah 9. And their commission was to rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem, to, to start worshipping God, the God of Israel, again. And uh, when we read other uh, sections in the Old Testament, we realize they started strong. They started uh, with great motivation, a great passion, a great vision. Um, but uh, after a few months, that, that, that quickly became depleted. And they ended up peop as people with, with very little hope. It fizzled out. Because the work for them was a lot harder than they had anticipated. Uh, it was a lot slower to get things going than they thought. Certainly, it was thoroughly exhausting trying to, trying to rebuild the temple. They were physically hungry. Food was hard to come by. They were vulnerable. They had no one to, to look out for them, no Babylonian army standing around protecting them. They were open to all sorts of invaders, all sorts of enemies, opposition uh, from within and from without. Kind of a hopeless scenario. And so God, what does he do? He provides a prophet. He provides a message. And he says to them through the prophet Zechariah, it won't be like this forever. And so we turn then to, to the verses here. And at the beginning of this particular message here, in verse 9, uh, Zechariah instructs the people, God through Zechariah instructs the people, rejoice, O people of Zion. And shout in triumph. Not easy when you're a hopeless bunch of people to, to sum up rejoicing and, and, and sum up you know, uh, um, shouting in praise when you feel so beat down, when you have no hope. And yet that's what they're instructed to do. What is the reason for them to, to respond like this? Well, the good news, according to Zechariah here, is that your king is coming. That's what should bring you hope. Uh, he has somehow or other, we're not told why or how, been absent, and yet he is coming back to dwell among his people. It's probably because they've been in exile. And they've come back. Because, of course, a defeated nation has no king. But the good news here is that how you feel, your situation, your hopelessness, it won't be like this forever because your king is coming. And you see, when he arrives, you will see he is good, says Zechariah, uh, down that later in verse 9. He is humble and he is victorious. Right? Your king is, sorry, sorry, 
righteous and victorious. Uh, Your king will be just, he'll be fair in all of his ways. And he has won, and he has overcome the enemy. Those agencies that are at work robbing you of your joy, the king has dealt with all of those. He has overcome them. He has beaten them to death. Therefore, rejoice, O Jerusalem. He is righteous and he is victorious. And yet he goes on to say, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Typically, a, uh, a king would have entered, uh, a victorious king would have entered the city, um, and quite often on a war horse, you know, just to show what he's about. He's a, he means business. But here we see not a war horse, but a donkey, a beast of burden. Because this king is humble. And he's not riding on a war horse because he's not bringing war with him. He's bringing peace with him. He's not a tyrant, you know, strolling into town, right, you peasants, you will do what I say. It's none of that at all. He is humble. He's one of us. All right? he's, he's the kind of king who is, who is willing to reach down uh, from, from his throne. He's willing to, to be among his people. He's not aloof. Right? He's not separate. In fact, we could say he is willing, so willing and so humble that he is willing to be placed in a manger because there's no room at the inn. So much for the king, but what about his kingdom? What about the realm of his, his operations, his authority? Well, in verse 10, this is what he's going to do. This is what God is going to do through him. He says, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. See, those, those weapons of war will be removed. Uh, the, the king will destroy the destroyers because you won't need them anymore. You, know, you, you, can, you can come in this, this place that, that he is building, uh, his presence, his kingdom, and you can feel safe because you can depend on him for protection. Weapons are simply not needed because he's already won the war. There's no more enemies that you need to worry about. The king has done it all. He's the one who's victorious, don't forget. And so you can feel secure when you live in his kingdom. But look down again at verse 10, the second half of verse 10. He says, um, I will destroy the weapons of battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. Okay? Peace to the peoples. So, so we're not just talking about a reign that only affects the, the people of Israel or even that, you know, the area um, where they would have lived in, uh, in, in, in modern-day sort of Palestine area. Um, no, indeed, he says, this peace, his reign, uh, will extend over the whole world. You know, um, his realm will stretch from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River in the east uh, to the ends of the earth. It's a universal reign. So something special about this king. Just imagine um, a king so great uh, as that, a king so attractive a kingdom so strong, uh, the, 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 a place of no fear, a place of no hostility, no hostility among people and between people, no COVID, yes. no depression, no cynicism, no loss. It won't be like this forever. Second reason for hope, building on that. 
Number two, hope has a name. Okay? Hope is more than just a nice idea to warm our hearts at Christmas time. Uh, it's more than just an interesting concept. In fact, this is how we increase our hope, no matter where you start from, whatever position you come in with this evening and your, your level of hope. This is how our hope will increase, because hope has a name. This is real life that we're talking about here. Look down at verse 11. This is where it comes from. Um, this is going to happen, says God, through the prophet, because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Because of the covenant I made with you, I will set the prisoners free from the waterless dungeon. This is a promise that this will actually happen. And so, therefore, this is greater than just a nice idea, a nice philosophical concept. How do we know this is actual real life that we're talking about here? Um, because of this idea in verse 11 of covenant. What is a covenant? Uh, a covenant is a, is a solemn binding contract, in this case, between God and his people. Uh, God voluntarily sort of enters into this deal with his people. He says to them, I will be your God you will be my people. I'm going to give myself to ensuring, says God, that I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. It's kind of like a marriage. In fact, marriage is great and beautiful because it reflects the great covenant between God and his people, and that's, in, that's what our marriages are, are intended to reflect. Till death do us part. That's what God says to his people through the covenant. In sickness and in health, I will be there for you. I will give myself for you. I will lay down my life for you. And this covenant, though, unlike marriage, has been sealed with blood. What does that mean, sealed with blood? Sounds very gruesome. That's the point. Of course it is gruesome. This is how covenants would have been established uh, in those contemporary times. Uh, from the very earliest days, uh, a, a covenant was made between uh, two parties, in this case God and his people, um, and uh, as that covenant was made and written down in law and established, quite often an animal would have been taken, or some animals taken, killed, cut into pieces, blood poured out. And this, at the very basic level, would have been a symbol of the seriousness of that covenant that we are entering into. Effectively, it says, what happened to those animals will happen to the one who breaks this covenant. And yet this covenant, it says, will bring freedom. In verse 11, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Often that's the place, by the way, that the vanquished peoples would have been put, like a holding dungeon, you know, uh, off in a dry well or something like that, before they got exported off to uh, uh, the place of exile. That would have rung very true to those listening um, in Zechariah's day. So how does this all tie in then? How does this idea of covenant tie in to us? Well, surely that's, that's, this is the whole point of our gathering this evening. It's, it's the point of Christmas um, because at Christmas we recognize, uh, traditionally anyway, we recognize that God gave his son, who is the king, 
He's the victorious and righteous king that we've been reading about here in Zechariah 9. And he established this everlasting kingdom. And yet this king is a, a humble king who, who gives himself for his people. This is what Christmas is all about. But yet God does not send his people into battle on their own. In fact, through the king, God went to battle on their behalf. This is what Christmas is all about. Um, God set this covenant with his people. They were the ones who broke it. That was the reason for their sorry, helpless situation in the first place. That's how they ended up in exile, because they broke the covenant. And yet at Christmas we see that God says to his people, I'm not done with you yet. You broke my covenant, but I will save you. Um, I, I will take the hit, says God, to us at Christmas. Uh, he, he says, I will absorb the punishment of you breaking the covenants. It should be you ending up like the animal, but I'll step in. I'll take it on myself. I'll fulfill your part of the covenant. That's how much I love you. And so in Jesus, God did just that. Um, the king gave his life. Uh, and on a cross, that's, that's what happens. Jesus, the king, went into battle for you. He, he, he was paying your end of the bargain. That's what he was doing. That's why he came. Uh, this covenant sealed with blood ended up being his blood. It should have been us, right? But the, the humble king took it on himself. Rejoice, O Israel. Shout in triumph. Your king is coming. And we read on and we see this announcement of this tremendous, humble, yet victorious king. There is a call and there is a promise attached to it. First, the call. We see that in verse 12. Come back to the place of safety, says God, and all you prisoners who still have hope. All you prisoners who still have hope. Come back to that place of safety. There's this call to return to God. Right? This, this, this should be our reaction to this glorious vision that is being painted before our eyes. This, this, uh, this, this great promise that God brings. Come back to me. Come back. Coming back suggests that we have wandered away and that God is coming to, to bring us home. And so now he calls us to return to him. You see, it requires faith to make hope operational. Without faith, there's no hope. Without faith, Christmas is just a nice story, but it's sentiment. It requires faith to make hope operational. Real hope when you have faith in the king, when you trust the king, when you, when you see what he has done, when you see what he's done for you, hope will rise. So the first, first part was the call, come back, trust, faith, believe. But the second part then is the promise. This is astounding. Second half of verse 12, I promise you this very day, says God, that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. 
Double blessing for each trouble. God is saying that when you put your hope in the king and in his kingdom, you will not be disappointed. Okay? You, you, you won't have your hopes dashed like maybe other hopes that you've had in other things. When you hope in the king, you will get more than you ever bargained for, says God, in this promise. It's there in black and white. Whatever sorrows and troubles you have now, says God, your blessing will be double. Take that and double it. So just think about that for a moment. The more troubles you have now, the more blessing you'll be repaid with. That's what it says. That's what happens when the king comes. You might see that in this life. You'll definitely see it in the age to come. But either way, in the kingdom of the king, depression will be turned to joy. Failure will become victory. Fear will turn into peace. Loss will become gain. Because hope has a name. Everything sad will come untrue, says Sam in Lord of the Rings. Third reason then for hope this Christmas. Number three, your life counts. Your life counts. Look at verse 13. Um, Judah is my bow and Israel is my arrow. Jerusalem is my sword. And like a warrior, I will brandish it against the Greeks. Judah is my bow, Israel my arrow, Jerusalem my sword, and I'm going to be the warrior, says God. It's kind of odd, isn't it, given verse 10? Because when, when the king comes, he's going to remove the chariots from Israel, the war horses from Jerusalem. So how is it then that Israel is going to become the arrow and Judah the bow? And you know, why, why, why the two? How can they both be the case? Well, the key is in verse 13. Judah is my bow. Israel is my arrow. Jerusalem is my sword. It is the people themselves that are to be the weapons of God. God is the warrior. Not guns, not tanks, not chariots, not spears, not politics. God's people are the bows and arrows and swords used by God. That is an important distinction. God wants you. Your life counts. He created you. He loves you. The king gave himself to save you. He came to win you blessing. And yet you have been given a calling as his people. You've been given a purpose. Notice down in verse 10, um, it says that the king... Uh, will come to bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea, from the great Euph river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. That's his mission. Right? His peace is going to go out and extend across the whole globe. And yet in verse 13, you are the bow, you are the arrows, you are the weapon in the hands of God. What does that mean? 
It means that he chooses you to serve under him. Right? It means he chooses you to join his mission, to extend his kingdom until it covers the whole earth. His mission is of enormous significance. Therefore, your life is of enormous significance. Your life counts. You've been called to advance the kingdom of the king. You've been called to advance his peace, his hope, his joy. You've been called to be his bow, to be his arrow, to be his sword in his hands. But let me just be clear. We're not talking about violence here. Right? We're not talking about war. We're not talking about lifting up arms. That is completely contrary to the God uh, of peace that we're, we're learning of here. In fact, Jesus the King gives orders before he uh, closes out his earthly ministry. Uh, we had his disciples around him, and he says to them, go and make disciples of every nation and baptize them and teach them to obey all that I command. That's how the kingdom advances. Right? That's, that's the weapon uh, that we are to go out on mission for God. Even when he says here, You'll brandish, I will brandish you against the Greeks. Uh, he's not referring to a specific people group per se. He's referring to all of those outside the kingdom of God. And again, we're going to them not with violence at all. But God is going to use you to show and tell the kingdom and talk about the king to outsiders who don't know him and have never heard him. So your life counts. Of course, we're called together, aren't we, to be messengers of hope to a hopeless world. And that's, what we're, that's what we're doing here at Foundation Church Belfast. We, we say quite often here that we're a community on mission. And we've seen what the mission is. It's the mission of God to go and extend his kingdom across the earth. But yet we do this together. We're a community on mission. One person, of course, in the kingdom of God can be tremendously effective. They can wield um, this great weapon of hope and peace and love in the name of God. It's amazing. But together, on, on, on mission together as a community, we can make so much more noise than any of us individually could do on our own. We can raise a battle cry to the king that it's impossible for you to do on your own. We're, we're kind of like a small but growing battalion right, of hope-filled, faith-filled, spirit-filled disciples of Jesus. And so if you're not connected already to Foundation Church, we'd love you to, to, to... This is a call to you, right? This is a call to you to come and join us in 2022. In fact, the 9th of January is going to be our next gathering, uh, Sunday the 9th of January. We're going to gather, as we do every Sunday, to celebrate the King, to, to receive instructions, our marching orders from Him, to, to, to get fresh vision for what He's doing, to regroup, and then to go out on mission together. And we'd love you to, to come and join that if you're not already connected to a church. But don't wait until the 9th of January uh, to get going on the mission that God has called us to. In fact, you can begin right now to be a messenger of hope, even over this festive period. And God knows we need hope right now. And it's down to you to, to bring it. And here, here's, here's one way you can start. You can, you can start, for example, by taking these three headlines from today's talk. 
and start using them. Start, start talking about them. Start offering them. Three reasons for hope. It won't be like this forever. Hope has a name. And your life counts. Trust me, if you go out with that message and you engage your friends and your family and your colleagues with, with that conversation, see where that leads you. It will lead to real, it will lead to real hope. And that real hope is yours because the King has come. And his name's Jesus. Let's pray.